I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, hello. I'm Susanna Constantine, and this is my wardrobe malfunction, the podcast where clothes are the name of the game, but sometimes don't get a look in. This is episode six of season six. If you're new here, welcome and thanks for joining us. There are dozens of episodes to catch up on, including Dame Kristen Scott Thomas on corsets, Ruth Davidson on monobrows, and Jess Gillum on vegan DMs. But let's get on to today's guest. She's a lawyer, writer, and politician, was the youngest member of the House of Lords, and the first Muslim woman to sit at the cabinet table. It's none other than Baroness Saida Vasi. This is another of our two-part episodes. The second drops on Sunday. So let's grab the handles, open my wardrobe doors, and find out what's inside. Today... My guest is someone who I've long admired for so many different reasons. She's a lawyer, a politician, former co-chairman of the Conservative Party, was the youngest member of the House of Lords and the first Muslim woman to sit at the cabinet table. I bring you today, ladies and gentlemen, Baroness Saida Wasi. Do I say Wasi or Vasi? Because in Pakistan Vasi. it's Vasi. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> The vast valleys, I remember that. I know Pakistan really well. I, I used to oh, go wow. there. Every, I went there every year for um, about 10 years. It's my favorite country in the world. Isn't it a stunning place, Susanna? You know, I mean, I keep, so I keep talking to producers and saying, do you know how amazing that place is? It's not just the war on terror and Osama bin Laden. You know, there's like an amazing history and culture. And But anyway, but my grandparents set off from there in the 50s. Really, really. Yeah. In the 50s, what? And they came to the UK in the yeah, 50s? Yeah, so granddad came in 58 and then dad came in 62. Uh, and then obviously we then we were born here, our kids were born here, my grandkids are now born here. You've got grandkids? Yeah. How old Four are you? Grandkids. You, look, you look about 12 years old. I'm 50 in about four weeks. <laughs> I'm 50 in four weeks. But that's amazing. So how old were you when you had your first child? Cards on the table. I got married very young. Um, I was about ni- I was 19 um, and, and I had one child and that marriage didn't work out well. Um, and then I got married again and I inherited four children. And, but we've bought all five of them up. So they're our kids for all intents and purposes. So my husband and I, so, and he got married very young. My current husband, he got married very young, had his kids. Um, so my husband is 50. I'm 15 four weeks. And our eldest is 30. Is 30. Oh my So goodness. we have a 39 year old, a 28 year old, a 24 year old, a 23 year old, and a 22 year old. And four grandkids. <laughs> wow. I mean, 
That's because aside from obviously your incredible <laughs> political achievements and um, your in the legal profession, you you seem you've always seemed to me someone who is so youthful. And once your brain kicks into gear, then we know you've got your age and experience. But do the do those grown up children look at you as another child? I think we, um, so in the early days, obviously there were five of them and I was in government and, you know, my other half is actually amazing. Um, he just got on with it and most of the time I didn't know what crisis was going on. Um, so, you know, it, it, I think having having him be that stabilising force for them and he did a lot of the parents' evenings and, you know, when I used to bail out on them because of government on holidays, he just used to take them along and I would join at some point and then disappear again. So having had, oh no, somebody started drilling. That is not good. That's okay. The boiler has broken down. Of all the other things to happen, the boiler has broken down. British gas is on strike, so I'm going out of my mind trying to get plumbers in to fix things. <laughs> oh, it's so glamorous. So I glamorous. Know it is. I'm so sorry. This is not what we're supposed to be talking about, but hey-ho. Um, so yeah, we. I think he was he was just great, and we went through. What, what was really wonderful was the kids because we were still relatively young. So when the kids were hitting kind of twenty um, and late teens, we were forty, uh, and you know we had friends who would say, "Oh, we go on holiday and we have to get a babysitter when we go out in the evening to keep an eye on the kids in the hotel." And they said, "Oh yeah," I said, "We just sit in the bar with ours." <laughs> <laughs> So it's really great seeing kids having friends who were having kids in their late thirties and early forties and looking for babysitters. And like I said, yeah, we were sat in the bar with our kids at that point. That's I, I'd like to ask you about that because my kids often say to me they are like twenties, um, well, twenty two, nineteen, and the age you got married, and seventeen. And often they say to me, "Oh, mom, why were you so old when you?" had us because I'm I'm nearly 60 and um you look amazing oh and I just said well you know it's just like how life happened and but I I kind of often wonder well I'd like to know whether you think it's good to have them younger and to be going through this experience when you're almost on an equal playing field or um yeah how how you feel in an ideal world would you have like to have left having children a little bit later no no I wish no. I mean I I definitely think having them younger and you know my our eldest is like I said he's now 30 he's had his two kids uh, our daughter is 28 and she's had both her kids so we've actually said to our kids just ha if you find the one then just have the children because I think particularly for women, our careers really start to take off in our late 20s and early 30s. And if by then you've had the kids, you know there's no more time off. And in a way, whilst you're still fumbling around in your 20s, starting off your career, then just fumble around a little bit longer and have the kids and get them out of the way. But the other thing is, I'm probably not a conventional mother because I um, I was working until 10 days before I had, the one that I had, I was working until 10 days before I had her. And then I went back to do a case, I think seven weeks after I'd had her. And then I went back full time 12 weeks after I had her. And she just went into full time nursery at 12 weeks. And 
I got a lot of grief at the time for being, mm. you know, and, and I wasn't all maternal, to be fair, Suzanne. I didn't suddenly wake up and think, oh, my God, I love the child. I just remember thinking, oh, OK, well, I just need to fix that one now and send it to nursery, get back to work. And I really didn't stop. The, I didn't stop the way I was going to live my life because she came along. And some people might think, well, that's really selfish. But what I say is, you know, 23 years on, she's now and now the coffee machine's going to go off in the background I mean, what is this it's like every sound it's every sound man's nightmare isn't it everything's going <laughs> off in the background but um but you know she's she's now um 23 Susanna and she's um a medic in the in the RAF and wow. she is a real kick-ass young woman who isn't scared of anything. And I think, well, there you go. You know, I often, when I was younger, would take her out of school and get permission um, and say, look, I'm really sorry. I'm traveling for work, for work. She's coming with me, especially when I was a single mom. And she traveled all over with me and learned on the job and aced her exams. You know, and I kind of think there's different ways to parent. And this concept of <gasps> give up your life Par you know, child-centric parenting. No, I don't think it's like that. You know, women work in rice fields and have them on their back. So let's just get over all this whole sense of how we parent. I, so maybe a lot of people will criticise me, but it worked for me and it seemed to work for her. Mm, I, I so agree because I, I would often, I mean, two things that have come out for me really resonate with what you said is that having children earlier and when you, you start to kind of mature in your career, um, you have more time for yourself. You don't have to get back and then, you know, do the nappies or the milk or breastfeed through the night, which is what I had to do. You have more to, when, when it's time off and you're home from work, you have more time. And that is, I've never had anyone say that before. That's brilliant. And the other thing is, I do think, especially with girls, and I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, I would feel tremendous guilt because I was traveling a lot. You know, I, I was away maybe five months a year traveling. And um, I feel such guilt. And then I thought, you know what? I, I am providing, hopefully, a role model for my, especially my daughters, that I'm making my own money. Um, I'm not, that you know, they are going to have to be independent. They're going to have to go through a lot of shit in their lives. It's not always going to be roses and um, security. And this is a good bedrock for them. And that alleviated my guilt a bit by, by being, like you, a working mother. Yeah, I, I think I absolutely agree with you. And, and I think my daughter's taken exactly, my elder daughter's taken exactly the same approach where she's had the babies, gone back to work, you know, organised childcare. And I think that sense of can do and just, just, and, and, but just make it happen and get through it and get through to the other end, I think is, uh, is, uh, is something. And also I think, look, every woman will choose differently. But I think to say to them, you don't have to have this overwhelming feel, feeling of maternalness and now think that your whole life is focused to that around them. Because we are only custodians of our kids, Susanna, nothing more than that. We are there to help them and guide them and support them and bring them up and then let them go. And mm. sometimes I find that those women who do give up so much of their life and, you know, I have... I have siblings who've done that, give up so much of their life for their child, then can't let their child go. And yeah. so therefore they're not, they're not, whereas I'm kind of saying, yeah, go fly the nest, go travel the world, you know, pop in when you can see me, if you can't go live your lives. And I think sometimes the other end of the spectrum is that you then hold your kids back because you, in a way you've held yourself back for them. You then hold them back for you. Mm, I think that's absolutely true. Totally. I'm, I'm a hundred percent the same 
same mother as you are. And like you say, there are many different mothers around. But um, so you were you you had your own daughter and you were one of five daughters. You've got four yeah. sisters. So what was that like growing up with all girls? Um, I think, first of all, it made my dad a feminist because um, he had no choice. And I think that was good for a, um, you know, an, uh, an Asian Pakistani origin father, Muslim father who came from quite a conservative society. And it opened his mind up to some, you know, amazing decisions. And he is, bless him, he's now in his 80s and he's my best friend. And we talk every day. And, and, and I think he, because of, he became a trailblazer uh, because of that. And, uh, and it was always a very loud, chatty house. Um, you know, lots of kind of discussions or lots of rows, lots of fights. I can imagine. <laughs> uh, but it, I think it also, because there were no boys to compare to in the family, we didn't sense, we didn't pick up on, I suppose, sexism and gender bias within families uh, because there was nobody to gender biases against effectively but what we did know was that the world out there wasn't kind to girls and one of the things my mum said regularly to us when we were growing up would be you've got to be better than the boys you've got to be better than the boys and the boys were just some abstract thing out there uh, but but I mean I write about this in my book um Susanna where I say that in many ways um girls are born on the wrong side of the balance sheet you know we're seen as the debits and they're seen as the credits we're seen as the takers they're seen as the givers we're the ones that uh, carry shame they're the ones that carry honor and that from the moment we're born we're fighting to get onto the right side of the balance sheet without actually understanding that it's only the way that we've couched it that makes it sound so negative so I think we knew there was a fight for equality out there certainly within the wider society and culture but certainly within the home, we didn't feel that because there were no boys around. Mm. So how it would, I mean, just if you, if your parents hadn't come to um, the UK, where well, your dad hadn't come to the UK and you were still in rural Pakistan, imagine how different your lives would be. Not just because you were in a different country, but because you were a family of all girls. Yeah. How and, and more than that, we were a family of all girls from a very poor family. Uh, and I think poverty and gender combined uh, would have made it uh, would have made it almost impossible for us to achieve our dreams. And I um, founded a charity back in 2002, the Severa Foundation. Uh, and it was it was exactly that thought that went through my mind. So at the time I was going through, you know, the end of my first marriage. Um, I had a young girl, um, you know, uh, I, I was a single mom. And the thoughts that went through my mind was that if this had, if my dad hadn't left and he was a poor man with five girls and one of his girls has, was just about to get divorced with a daughter of her own, and there was absolutely nowhere to turn to. And like most things, I think if there isn't, if it isn't there, well, you know, invent it. And we started this foundation. And um, two weeks ago, uh, we uh, opened the doors to the first purpose-built women's centre in uh, in that part of rural Punjab. We've put thirty thousand women through the program. And when I go there and I sit with those young women, widows, divorcees, orphan girls, I just think. Uh, you know, there, but for the grace of God, you know, I mean, it, another time, another world, I would not have been the woman raising money and making this project a reality. I would have been one of its users. Uh, 
and and that's how close my life kind of pivots to the to the people who use this to the young women who use the center can i ask you something yes can i come with you the next time you go there yeah you can i really i really mean it because like i said pakistan is i, I think of it so i spoke to a friend of mine there um about two days ago because my husband is there at the moment on work. He was allowed to go and he got all the permissions from the Pakistani government and from here wow. blah, 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 for work. But, um, so, and he's setting an office up out there. But like I said, I've got so many really old, old friends out there. And, and it is like, and I spoke to this friend of mine and I said, oh, Yusuf, I just, you know, I need to come home. And that's how I feel about wow. Pakistan. I don't know why. I don't know yeah. why, but I just, there's something about it. And, and, and I would love to come with you. And I Oh, I would love to take you and, and show you the women. Because what we're now doing is we're, uh, we've started, a, we're just about to start a, a new course, which hopefully once COVID has settled down, we'll get going, uh, which is hair and beauty. And we're going to teach them to be uh, beauticians and hairdressers and therapists. And then we've set up a, a salon on the outside of the building and they will rent a chair and they will earn their own living. Amazing. Well, maybe we can then, maybe we could, um, okay, I can just, I've got, we're not talking, sorry, we're not talking about wardrobe malfunctions or clothes here, but <laughs> perhaps what we could do. This feels like a coffee, about, doesn't it? This I know. Like um, but, I, you know, what we could do maybe is I could speak to Trini and we could take a whole load of her makeup out. She can oh, donate wow. a whole load of her makeup. <gasps> that would be amazing. We could do something like that, couldn't we? And then, because even yeah. I could put that makeup on someone because I just, you know, I just slap stuff on my face but um so yeah this is definitely and I say things to people when I'm interviewing them, yeah 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 I'll do this but I I really mean it with you Good. because Pakistan and the women and it's like Benazir Bhutto who I, I actually met I just hmm. wasn't she phenomenal no I was really disappointed in her because oh, I thought you? she'd yeah, I didn't think she stood up to the Mullers. I didn't, she didn't, at the end of the day, she didn't have the backbone to yeah. fight for the female cause. That's, that's yeah. just my personal do you opinion. Think that, do you think she was, a, she was such a kind of trailblazer in so many ways? I, I, I suppose it's, a lot of people say this about uh, Margaret Thatcher, don't they? They say she wasn't a woman's yeah. woman at all. But I kind of feel that, because they, they're literally the ones that put their hand through the kind of glass door right at the beginning and are injured and battered up because of it, there's only so much that they can fight for. And it almost takes another generation of women to then bring the next level to the fore. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think that, you know, I mean, when I, I met her and I went to her house, it was in, in Karachi. And I remember her coming down the stairs and just this kind of real beauty and this sort of iconic face that was recognized all over the world and we talked you know I wanted to talk about her view on what she was doing for women and la 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 and the only thing she really wanted to talk about was makeup and clothes I oh, wow. wish she was still around to come on the podcast but it was so bizarre it was like suddenly here I was you know someone who'd come from Great Britain, who had access, you know, very luckily to everything. And she wanted to know about what was in fashion and what colours. And 
And it was it was bizarre. It's it was interesting bizarre you say thing. that, you know, because she came years and years ago. She came actually connected to the Severa Foundation. She was one of my earliest supporters for the Women's Centre. And uh, she came to Yorkshire um, and she did a fundraiser for us. Um, in this tiny, tiny little place called Dewsbury, the town hall was electric the day she turned up. But we got a mix up with the trains and she, we ended up, um, I ended up picking her up from the wrong station or I ended up going to the wrong station. And um, when uh, I turned up and I turned up late and I was mortified, I parked my car and went rushing into Lee's train station. <laughs> and she was just walking around body shop. And she's like, no, nah, I'm keeping myself occupied. <laughs> so, so Fantastic. She was like flapped about it. She wasn't, well, yeah, yeah I just, because I, I took up my time, I walked around body shop. So, yeah. That is amazing. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, my darling, with all your sisters, did you have, did you, and with your kind of, I mean, I don't think you were, you know, you're, you're not a, you don't have a strict Muslim background, but you obviously have a very strong faith. Did that um, translate into your clothes or wearing shalwa kameez or did you ever um, rebel and think, oh, sod it, I'm going to have a tattoo or shave one side of my hair. Did you have a re- ever have I was a the least face? rebellious child ever, which sounds bizarre considering who I am now. <laughs> my mum said, until I kind of got into my mid-twenties, I was this like real placid creature. And, uh, and, the, and I hated shopping. And uh, I wouldn't buy my own clothes. My mum would buy all my clothes and I would wear whatever she bought home. She even bought my wedding dress, and I didn't care. Um, and uh, you know, probably I didn't care to get married. Probably that's why I didn't care about the wedding dress. But <laughs> the uh, what was interesting was she said that you had such an aversion to shopping that the one thing that I had to go to town to shop for was shoes because she had to get me to try them on because my shoes, my feet were growing all the time. And Tuesdays, the whole of town would close down. It was a half-day closure. I don't know if you remember half-day closures. Yeah, I thought it was a Wednesday, so we, but okay, Tuesday. Yeah. It was, so it was a Tuesday, I think, in our town. I'm sure it was. But anyway, there was a half-day closure in town, but Clark's would stay open. And I refused to go to town on any day except for on half-day closure because I knew she would only take me to Clark's, get me my shoes, and she would not force me to go around any other shop because I hated going to the shops. <laughs> 
Oh my God. So you rebelled in other ways. You rebelled in um, being incredibly stubborn by the sounds of it. Yeah, and I think I was a thinker. So whereas yeah. my elder sister would constantly be kind of wanting to acquire more and more makeup and, you know, push the boundaries on what she could wear, I was pushing the boundaries on whether I could go to the library more often and have more books to read. And I mean, I literally, Susanna, looked like Ugly Betty. Right. If you looked at my photo from school, <laughs> I had huge, thick jam jar glasses, massive eyebrows. So my yes. husband and I were at school together and we didn't get together at school. And so occasionally the kids will say, why don't you guys get together at school? You're so good for each other. And he always says, do you know what she looked like at school? And I went, you fickle so-and-so. <laughs> anyway, you had one eyebrow, you had thick glasses, and you wore a trench coat. I couldn't even get beyond that. <laughs> Every sign was saying, go away, no entry, goodbye, no, not interested. <laughs> oh, my God, that is hilarious. Okay, so did you ever develop a, a kind of taste for clothes? Or have you always just thought, oh, no. you know, just throw them on me? Yeah, clothes are a chore. And if somebody could go out and just buy... So if I go out and I find something that fits well and is comfortable and looks right, I buy four of them. Um, so, <laughs> so I've got a jumper or a cardigan in like five colours because I liked it and it fit and it was fine and I don't have to go to town. I don't have to go shopping again. Um, and so if I, you know, and, and same with shoes. If I get some shoes or boots and they're great, I buy two of them uh, because for me they're functional. And what really, I suppose, shocked me was that when I went into public life, I was a lawyer for many years. I was a criminal defense lawyer, which basically meant I hung out in police stations and prison cells and that kind of space, which meant I could be as scruffy as anything. It really didn't matter. It was rough and ready, high street stuff. It, it wasn't city or corporate. And then I, I kind of hit public life and politics. And I was just, I had no idea. I have worn the most awful things just not thought about what I've got on my hair's been a mess I haven't worn makeup for days I mean the whole thing you know when you talk about my wardrobe malfunction my life has been a big wardrobe malfunction <laughs> and um, oh. and I think there've been moments when I've got it right and that's because I had a I had a wonderful wonderful PA actually when I was party chairman um Jenny uh, Jenny Gober and she basically said look we've got party conference coming on you're going to be pho photographed every minute of the day you've got a huge amount of speeches you're kind of front and center and she literally dragged me down for a session of working out what my colors are what my style is um, and I bought a whole series of clothes at that moment in time and they're probably the nicest things that I ever had and that coordinated, you know, she she did the whole thing. She went from underwear right through to my shoes. She's amazing. I mean, I now look back on it and think, and I just sat there, you know, like a lamb going, okay, okay, I'll wear that, without any opinion on anything. I think the only thing I have always been aware of is, um, I think because I come from quite a conservative society, um, I've always been aware of, you know, uh, kind of nothing above the knees. So quite prim, nothing above the knees, no cleavage, no underarms. That's been the rule. Uh, because, you know, my mom would watch all my television appearances. And the only thing she'd look at is whether or not there's any cleavage on display. She didn't care. And mom, I was talking about the, you know, the future of Britain's, you know, monarchy. Oh, no, not just about that. I saw that you didn't dress properly. <laughs> so I've always been aware of making sure there's, there's nothing on show, really.
And for you, when you, um, when David Cameron appointed you as um, as Minister Without Portfolio in the in the cabinet, you wore the most beautiful kind of almost marbleized pink, different pink shawar kameez. Was that something that you, that must have been something that you chose? No, so it was something that my sister chose. So my shalwar kameezes are basically uh, were um, at that time um, organized and stitched by one of my younger sisters. Uh, well, she didn't stitch them. She got them stitched for me in Lahore. And uh, on the morning of cabinet, you remember we had that kind of, we had the election and then no government for a while because there was all the coalition wranglings going on. And I was utterly exhausted uh, by the time we got to the end of that process. I hadn't been shopping for probably six months a year. And I remember waking up thinking, okay, what's new? And she'd left these clothes for me. And I thought, oh, that looks all right. It was pressed, it was new, and I pulled it out and I wore it. And not for one minute did I think that it would become this kind of iconic moment of flounce, you know, uh, Downing Street and the shovar kameez and the patta and the whole lot going on. Uh, but I think I've always felt comfortable in shalwar kameez because I've never been small. And for that reason, you know, I've fitted, really kind of fitted uh, trousers and things haven't always sat well. Whereas shalwar kameezes are really forgiving. They're really elegant, you know, if, and, and almost require you to have a little bit of meat on you to sit properly. So I think in that sense, I just thought, OK, well, I'll wear this and I'm comfortable in this anyway. And it was a warm, warm summer's day. Uh, I think the only thing that I do think about wearing uh, is is this really elegant garment. You might recognize it called a sharara or a garara, which is like flared legs at the bottom and a short dress. It's a very weddingy kind of outfit. A okay, lot of yeah, yeah, yeah. Wear it. It's a very yeah. traditional outfit. Um, and it, I, I think it, there's something quite iconic about the the garara and the sharara. It's just. It's just kind of, it's very elegant, but very powerful. It's a very power outfit. It was almost the what the women at court who held court would wear, you know, the kind of Maharaja's wife would mm. wear. But actually, she'd be a, a powerful woman in her own right. And there's something quite iconic, I think, about it. And I wear that outfit on, um, in the, I have a new one stitched each time, but on the children's wedding. So I wore it on my son's wedding. I wore a different one on my daughter's wedding. My other daughter's just about to get married, so I'm having another one stitched for her wedding. And it's the one occasion that I do wear it. Um, and, uh, and, and and we take a photograph um, in, our, uh, in front of our fireplace um, in exactly the same kind of, um, in exactly the same setting. And uh, yeah, I think one of the things we just want to see is this kind of lady in a garara getting older and older and older as the kids get married. <laughs> but they are, I mean, when, you, when I think of those, the uh, garara, it's kind of almost like, as far as it can be, the equivalent of a woman wearing a tailored suit, isn't it? It's more like a woman wearing a ball gown, I would say. Is it? I'm, tr I'm really... Oh, I do know what you mean. You know, it goes down to, to the knee. Both, it goes, goes to the knee and then it flares out. I know. You know it's sort I, of like yeah. whirling dervish almost. Yeah, yeah Yes, I know what you yeah. mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's a very traditional outfit. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's kind of... Is it Baluchistani? Yeah. Is it Baluchistani? Uh, I don't Baluchistani? know where the origins of yeah. it are. I don't know what the origins of the outfit are, but, you know, it's been worn in, um, you know, what was kind of the 
you know, uh, India beforehand and then yeah. Pakistan. But it's a very Pakistani outfit. Yeah. It's worn a lot, I think, in the Punjab as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's just one of those really kind of elegant, amazing, kind of powerful traditional outfits. Yeah, 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 stunning. So when you were in government, um, I mean, was there, did you get criticised a lot for your appearance by the media, as they love to yeah. do? Yeah, I did. I did. And in fact, on one occasion, there was a whole story that uh, Mary Portis had said that the, you know, that the women in cabinet are either, you know, really ugly or dress really ugly or something like that. And she wrote me a letter saying, I don't think I said that. I was quoted wrong. <laughs> but I know what she meant because it was the... I think it happened so quickly. I just, I hadn't developed who I was and what I felt was comfortable. And, you know, what I looked like was just so irrelevant. You can't go from one minute, you know, sitting in the corner of a police cell with your client urinating in the corner, drunk at two in the morning and thinking, well, I'm really glad I didn't wear my ball gown to this. You know, because you don't really care that you've got a nice suit on at that point. You just want your scruffiest jeans, a T-shirt and a hoodie and you turn up. Uh, but actually, you know, to then be literally, you know, paraded up and down Downing Street and being photographed all the time. So it was hard. It was a hard transition. And I wish I'd, I think I wish I'd given it a bit more thought uh, before I did it but you know in the end do I want to be remembered for my clothes probably not no and I I mean I think there have been um there have been some pretty I sartorially iconic women I mean obviously Margaret Thatcher and I do think Theresa May dressed amazingly yeah. and I love the way um you know she always had you, you know she made a statement with jewelry or lipstick or shoes and I loved her, and actually, she's someone I would adore to interview for um, my yeah. wardrobe malfunction. But she's said no. But I'm not going to give up because I, I, I would just be so interested. So to hear you um, say uh, that you never gave clothing a second thought, um, and I, I find it because most women they dress for to give themselves confidence. So if you were kind of giving a, a speech or something. Did you never think, okay, well, I'm going to wear this because it's going to act as a bit of armour? And I, I mean, you know, I'm sure Theresa May did that when she was going through the yeah. shit storm during. So Brexit I think my armour, I think my armour was my hair. So the one thing, oh, and I really miss it now in COVID. Uh, the one thing that I did do regularly is get my hair blow dried. So I've got a lot of hair, but very fine hair, so it can sit quite flat on my head. And so the one thing that I would do regularly is get my hair. So that was my armor. If I've got my hair blow dried, I kind of feel comfortable. I don't feel like I need to worry about it. Um, And I didn't really worry about makeup uh, because I think if you've got dark kind of eyebrows and dark lashes and things, then you can kind of get away with, I think, not wearing very much makeup. Um, and I'd always been really lucky with my skin. I mean, now I'm starting to get a lot of um, sun damage and pigmentation and things like that. But throughout my kind of 20s, 30s, 40s, it really wasn't an issue. And so I could I could actually go into work barefaced as long as my hair was blow dried. I was fine. Yeah. Did everyone else, did anyone ever comment on the fact that you hadn't you didn't give a damn about your appearance apart from your hair? Did anyone um, comment about it? I think there'd be kind of very nasty pieces occasionally on blog sites and things, you know, saying, oh, look at her. I remember I I did a a really uh, critical interview, I think, on Andrew Marr once, some 
journalist wrote all about the fact I had, had my eyebrows done. Um, and I remember at party conference, um, actually it was um, a telegraph journalist, just kept talking about my, um, oh, where did you get your shoes from? Are those shoes High Street? What brand are they? And I'm like, I don't care. I don't know. Does it matter? You know, I, and, and so there were moments like that where I kind of thought you're obsessing about the wrong things here. Um, but I do think that, you know, in retrospect, I probably should have thought a little bit more about the way I, the way I did dress. But then maybe there was an internal confidence in me, which I wasn't aware of, because if I wasn't confident, I wouldn't have just worn what I wanted when I wanted. I mean, a lot of the big um, fundraisers that took place when I was party chairman, you know, I'd, always, I'd been a sari, I'd been a shalwar kameez, I'd been a kind of, a, you know, a Pakistani gown of some sort. Um, and so I was never shy to hide that side of me. And, you know, if I felt comfortable in something, I really didn't mm. care whether somebody else thought it was appropriate or inappropriate. You know, I wore it. I remember being coming into um, Parliament once, really summer's day, I had a, a white cotton shalwar kameez on. And, uh, and uh, the late uh, Mrs. Uh, T uh, said, oh, that's a really lovely outfit. Is there a special occasion? And I said, no, it's just hot. <laughs> <laughs> I think she thought there was some sort of ceremonial dress, which was for some occasion. I went, no, just hot. <laughs> God bless. How many times did you meet Mrs. Thatcher? Um, quite a bit, because when I first joined, uh, she still used to attend the house and then obviously mm. became quite poorly. And uh, I would say my claim to fit, and, and she, she did a great fundraiser for us. Uh, we raised money for a social action project in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, for the mothers of Srebrenica, where we mm -hmm. tried to rebuild some of the houses of the women who were, um, who, well, whose husbands were killed in the genocide there. And uh, she did the fundraiser for us, um, and that was kind of my initiative. And she was phenomenally supportive. Wow. Um, and now she and and the office that I now share with a number of colleagues used to be her office in the House of Lords. Really? So oh. uh, yeah, maybe maybe there's a little bit of a spirit still hanging around. I'm sure there is. Uh, you know, she is such a force. The the part of her must be there, keeping an eye on everyone. She's so controlling; yeah. she couldn't let go. Oh, so who do you think, um, in, in your um, eyes, male or female, who do you think was sort of the most stylish politician? I think if I had the body for it and the confidence, I'd dress like Michael Portillo. Okay. <laughs> Slightly odd, but yeah. Okay, what, because he wears colour? Uh, yeah, because I think he, I mean, obviously I wouldn't dress like him because I, I dress like the female version of Michael Portillo. But I just think he, I would love to be able to just wear a really bright, shocking pink dress or a bright yellow dress with a big yellow bow in my head. Um, and I'd like to, uh, oh, you know, I, I'd really like to just be able to, Helen Bonham Carter is probably kind of, if I had an icon of who I'd like to dress like, I just think she, there's something about the way she dresses which says, I just threw this together and I really don't care what I look like, but I actually still look amazing. Yeah, okay. She's, she's yeah, she dresses with a sense of freedom, doesn't she? Like, she yes. doesn't, as long as she's happy, she doesn't care what anyone else thinks. Yeah. But I think, I mean, for you, if you kind of turned up in the in kind of canary yellow with a huge feather boa, coupled with your personality, which I'm seeing a side of now, I mean... It would be too much. And I think that's what <laughs> just just sitting here is kind of I'm thinking, okay, do people with huge personalities like you have, 
I wonder if instinctively you've known not to really give clothes too much of a second thought. I don't know. I don't know whether, I mean, I know that people, I say this about alcohol because people say you don't drink. And I say, look, it, you know, we were brought up on no alcohol. But as you get older, you know, you make choices. I said, I chose not to drink because I just don't think, I, I, don't, I don't know how loud I would be and how crazy I would be if I, had, if I had alcohol inside me. And I think, you know, I suppose that is a part of you which you always try and, you know, I always try and control. Um, I don't know if, um, if Tilly told you that uh, there's a Channel 4 programme coming out tomorrow called Stand Up to Cancer. And you're going to be try your hand as a, com- a comic. Stand up. <laughs> yeah. And it's the first time where one... Um, my mentor got me to dress up in the most outrageous costumes, uh, which I would, I've never done in my life. And he really stripped back all the public persona of sense and, you know, kind of control and always measured and just really pulled all that back. And I just don't know what he's unleashed, really, in many ways. And, you know, I think now at, now at 50, um, you know, maybe it's time for me not to be so scared of the person that is inside and and not be scared of letting other people see that have you i don't believe you've been scared of showing the person you are i think don't you think you've always shown the person you are um, i think that there is um i've always been cautious about being as open um, and as kind of casual in terms of, say, my language or, mm. so for example, on this program, I use some choice words, which I probably shouldn't have done. I'm, I really hope my dad doesn't watch it. He's going to go <laughs> mental. Um, so I think there's always this constant fight between trying to not disappoint and be the uh, 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 be the good girl uh, and let and, and let and if I am going to be bad, it's got to be on a point of principle, and it's got to be about my work. So I've always wanted to make the issue about my what what the issue is rather than about me, and therefore not dressing in a way which draws attention is is part of that. So it's not about and even when I you know when I wrote the book, it wasn't about me; it was about a, almost a, a, a biography of. The, the British Muslim community rather than my biography. So I think there's always mm. been a part of my own, which I, I think my personal me, which I always try and keep to the fore. I think what people see very openly is a very honest version of what I believe on issues, but very rarely will I talk about me. So for example, in the book, you know, a, a lot of people have commented on the fact that I get, I marry, I divorce and remarry in the sum of one paragraph. <laughs> and it's that sense of, well, we'll just part that. And I think that just we'll just park that as part of with the clothes thing. Let's just park that. Well, that's not a big thing for me to focus on. What's your book called? Uh, the Enemy Within. Ooh. A tale of a tale of Muslim Britain. How brilliant! How, well, I'm definitely gonna. I'm the Enemy Within. That's next on my list. Did you do an order audible book as well? I didn't know. It was. Uh, it was just. Uh, it, it was out in hardback, and I think it's now out in paperback. Okay. I'll check that out. That's it for part one. If you've enjoyed it, please give us a five-star rating and review us on your chosen podcast platform. Thanks to Saida, to our house band duo, and of course, thanks to you for listening. Catch up soon. Until then, my wardrobe is officially closed. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. 
Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. 